Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. And this week, we're going to be recapping our most recent journal club, where we tackled a particularly timely topic, and that being the treatment uh, and consequences of influenza infection. Uh, we're going to have a couple of articles that uh, are recently out uh, that deal with uh, the treatment of influenza. First, uh, looking at an article um, that you may or may not have heard of that was published in Lancet recently, looking at Tamavir versus usual care uh, for patients that were uh, diagnosed as having an influenza-like illness in a primary care setting. Um, and then we're going to look at a emerging and newer treatment for treatment of influenza, which is baloxavir for uncomplicated influenza. And then um, finally, we're going to wrap up with which what I, I personally think is kind of an interesting uh, facet and of, of influenza infections that, that we don't often hear about or, or or discuss or necessarily think about, um, and that's the increased incidence of uh, myocardial infarctions and, and cardiac events that can occur after influenza illnesses. Um, so first off, uh, before we kind of get to that, uh, we're going to start off with uh, with a discussion about uh, Oseltamivir versus usual care for uh, treatment of influenza-like illness. Uh, Dr. Strobot, I want you to introduce yourself and take it away. Hey, I'm Dr. Trevor Scroba from the University of Cincinnati. I'm here to talk about oseltamivir plus usual care versus usual care for influenza-like illness in the primary care setting, an open-label, pragmatic, randomized control trial by Butler et al. in Lancet of 2020. <clears throat> so what this large study essentially looked at <clears throat> was patients in Europe, 15 different countries in the outpatient setting who complained of uh, fever plus one URI symptom, whether it was cough, sore throat, rhinorrhea, or congestion, and then one systemic symptom, whether that be headache, myalgias, diaphoresis, chills, or fatigue, within 72 hours during a typical flu season. They took a total of 3,266 patients, which was powered to detect a one to two day mean difference uh, in these 15 European countries, and randomly assigned them to either routine care, which was uh, never really defined, but kind of at the discretion of the primary care doctor taking care of them, versus routine care plus a five-day course of Tamiflu, which was weight-based. The study type was open-label, it was non-blinded, and there was no placebo-controlled trial. They were randomized, and only about 50% of them uh, underwent some kind of swabbing, whether it be oropharyngeal or nasal swabbing, to confirm the flu. The other 50% were just treated based on symptoms alone. They included people in the randomization, such as people with heart disease, people with diabetes, people with chronic respiratory conditions, such as COPD and asthma, hepatic or hematologic issues, neurologic or neurodevelopmental issues. Um, they excluded people with chronic renal failure, immunocompromised people on steroids, chemo, or with any autoimmune diseases, or anybody whose standard of care in these European countries was to receive Tamiflu or to be hospitalized. Obviously, they excluded anybody with an allergy to Tamiflu or anybody expected to die within six months. Their primary outcome that they were looking at was patient-reported time to recovery, and how they did this was essentially keeping a diary uh, where you would have to put in one entry per day, and you would note when you were feeling better. Now, that was defined as returning to daily activity with minimal or no fever, headache, myalgias, or like I said, absolutely feeling at your baseline. They had a long list of secondary outcomes that they were looking at, um, unsure, and they didn't really disclose that they were powered to um, identify these outcomes, but they were cost-effectiveness, incidence of hospital admissions, repeat clinic visit times, time to alleviation of symptoms, uh, any new or worsening symptoms, time to initial reduction in severity, use of additional symptomatic and prescribed medication, and then other household transmissions of the infection. And... What they found was pretty interesting. Regarding the primary outcome, it was shown that people recover about a day earlier from Tamiflu. 
this has been shown kind of in the, in the literature that we have today, and at least when I discuss with my patients, that's kind of the, the reference, you know, anywhere between 12 and 24 hours. But they also, they also stratified people for age, uh, severity of illness, comorbidities, um, including the comorbidities I listed earlier in their inclusion criteria, and saw how much of a benefit these patients would gain from. And they found that the older you were, the more comorbidities you had, and the higher uh, severity of flu, you were trended towards having two to three days earlier recovery time. Regarding secondary outcomes, they found that there is no incidence between uh, influenza A and B, seasonal variation, or flu versus other viral illnesses in this 24-hour recovery period uh, when you were on Tamiflu. They found that the people on Tamiflu received slightly less antibiotics, and this was statistically significant. There were slightly lower new household infections, and that was also statistically significant uh, for those who received Tamiflu. And there is no difference in repeat visits, hospitalizations, <coughs> x-ray confirmed pneumonia, or over-the-counter uh, medication use in either group. The one side effect that we often talk about with Tamiflu is the increased incidence of nausea and vomiting. And often, like I said, from a personal experience, when I'm talking to patients, I almost tell them that this is a likely side effect from Tamiflu. They did find an increased incidence of nausea and vomiting that also lasted longer in the usual care plus Tamiflu group uh, compared to the just usual care group. In the Tamiflu group, it was 21% of these patients experienced uh, nausea and vomiting or worsening nausea and vomiting from their baseline before starting the medication versus 16% in the routine care group. Uh, I calculated, calculated out a number needed to harm, which is about 20. So out of 20 prescriptions of Tamiflu, about one of them uh, would become more nauseous and have more vomiting. All other symptoms did resolve faster in the Tamiflu group. And out of, they also take a look at the side effects. There was 29 serious side effects in the Tamiflu group. Um, 10 of those were deemed to be unrelated. One of them was defined as urticaria. And then one was unsure if this was a uh, relation to influenza or if this was related to the Tamiflu itself. But because of the temporal relationship, they, did, they included it. And it was an ischemic left leg that required a bilateral knee amputation. There were no other incidents of thrombotic events in the Tamiflu group. And per their chart review, that influenza itself does uh, increase your risk of thrombotic events. So... At the end of the day, there are a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses here. For strengths, I, I agree. A lot of trials call themselves pragmatic, but this one did seem relatively pragmatic. It was randomized. It's clinically relevant. They were looking at clinical outcomes here. Uh, they did a good job stratifying it and finding out who may benefit more from a five-day course of Tamiflu, and there was minimal loss to follow-up or withdrawal. As far as the limitations go, this is a European population and a primary care population, which does and does not reflect our emergency department population. We definitely see these patients who are more likely to um, have been followed up in an outpatient provider, just they don't have a PCP. And so we can see that for sure. Otherwise, Europeans uh, seem to have better access to healthcare. It is a little bit cheaper, and so having closer follow-up may be more likely in this population. They never defined what routine care was in, in, the, uh, in that study arm. It just seemed to be whatever the PCP's discretion was. And it's tough to know how much of the benefit was secondary to the Tamiflu versus potential changes in what the routine care was. And as in most of these studies, there is a slight underrepresentation of children and elderly patients. And furthermore, with fever being an inclusion criteria, some elderly patients do not have the immune system to uh, mount a fever. And so we may be missing out on what benefit that may have. 
My conclusions, at the end of the day, the study shows that the flu is self-limiting and in the appropriate patient population, treatment of Tamiflu may reduce symptoms for one day, maybe more in the elderly and chronically ill. And for every patient or every 20 patients that you treat, you'll have one increased incidence of nausea and vomiting. Just as an aside, last thing, here in the United States, via GoodRx, Tamiflu costs about $27 to $40 for a five-day course. Um, just something to know and something to talk to your patients about. Ultimately, I think that when prescribing Tamiflu to patients who are not recommended it by the CDC guidelines, it's important to have a risk and benefit conversation. Often I will engage these patients and say, these are the side effects of Tamiflu. This is the cost of Tamiflu. And now having hard numbers like, you know, one in 20 people are experienced significant worsening of their nausea and vomiting. Um, and then kind of having some shared decision-making and deciding what is best for that specific patient. Excellent. So, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, having not uh, had the benefit of uh, being able to attend uh, the Journal Club discussion last night, I, uh, I, I, I have just a couple of uh, questions or, or thoughts uh, that, uh, that maybe we could talk about and see maybe if it was brought up at all uh, in our discussion uh, as a group. Um, I guess one of the one of the interesting points, uh, you know, historically, um, some of the one of the arguments against uh, you know the previous evidence that would su- that would suggest a uh, a benefit of time to reduction of symptoms for olsatamivir was that uh, the outcome measures in terms of uh, symptom control were not really well defined. Like just, I guess, generally, what was your thought and your impression of of what symptom control? meant in terms of this uh, in this study was it pretty objective to to your eyes uh, is it something you would say that like would be translatable to your own experience having had you know viral illnesses in the past yeah that's a good question i think at the end of the day um they de- they did define it it was more subjective and patient um reported so specifically, they said return to daily activity with minimal fever, headache, myalgias, or nothing. And they don't really define what minimal is, understandably so. And so it really is just, hey, whatever patient is, when are you feeling better? Which I think is, it has its pros and cons because realistically, that's as a doctor what I'm going for. I want the patient to feel better, to feel some response to my therapy a little bit sooner, uh, which was nice, but I don't have any objective evidence of when their headaches were gone and when their fever was gone and when they were asymptomatic completely. I will say, interestingly enough, uh, one of their secondary outcomes was cost effectiveness. And, you know, obviously returning to work is something that factors into this. And although they never reported if Tamiflu was cost effective, it seems like regardless of if you were prescribed Tamiflu or just routine care alone, um, they returned to work at the same time. The people who got Tamiflu just felt better at work. And sort of, I guess, along those lines in terms of like interesting kind of uh, uh, secondary outcome measures that they had they had looked at, uh, one of them was uh, that reports of new infections within the household was decreased in the uh, usual care plus uh, Ulcetamivir group. Like, uh, did you guys have an opportunity to discuss that? I mean, secondary outcomes are kind of interesting and hypothesis generating, but uh, uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that particular finding. Yeah, we, we were talking about that, and, you know, Tamiflu, uh, you know, inhibits viral replication, and there's a lot of theories going on as whether it's maybe not so important in the young patients because they are fighting off the flu much quicker and doesn't have, the virus doesn't have a long enough time to replicate, and maybe that's why you don't see the, the you know, the absolute difference in, in improvement there. Um, but we were talking about specifically when to prescribe Tamiflu, and I think that would push us over the edge if you have somebody at home who is a liver transplant or immunocompromised or, uh, you know, a three-week-old, something like that. To minimize viral shedding, it is reasonable to have that discussion with the patient. And this 
this may actually help. And I think that's a time that the patient may get Tamiflu if they're otherwise a healthy, you know, reasonable person. Yeah. I guess. And the, the final, the final question was, so looking at figure four, um, you know, the, uh, the somewhat confusing thing is, I think is that the, the benefit of ulcitamivir doesn't just only apply to influenza, like patients who had confirmed influenza, but also patients who are not influenza positive. I, I, I guess that is a weird thing and sort of argues against like that it actually is effective. And was there, is this all placebo effect? Like, I guess I, I, I don't, I have trouble figuring that piece out. Yeah, it's actually, that was a a big part of our discussion point. And I think the PCR that we use has reports to sensitivity anywhere from 50 to 75%. So it's possible kind of two theories. One is that we're just missing the flu, that people look and they smell and they walk like the flu and we test them and they're influenza negative and we send them home because, you know, that's just not the case. We may have actually, or they have may have actually been treating the flu in just flu negative swabs. The second option is that there are similar ways that different different URI viruses kind of replicate, and there may be some cross coverage of Tamiflu. So the Tamiflu may actually have a broader indication, uh, maybe able to cover more viruses than just influenza itself, and that's why those patients are having improved outcomes early. Because again, looking at who were swabbed, only about fifty percent of the the patients were flu swab confirmed influenza, and yet the improvement in the 24 hours and even more so in the the chronically ill and older were seen through everybody those swabbed and those not swabbed so either we're missing the flu or tamiflu can cover some other viruses is the thought yeah i think the actually the testing for flu decisions to do the influenza swabs is interesting and you look at the cdc's uh you know multi-page guidelines on on when when to do the test and the test characteristics and and basically, if it if you're in the midst of uh, influenza season uh, and the patient comes in and they uh, look like the flu and they have body aches and they generally feel like they've been hit by a truck, um, assuming they have not been uh, <laughs> have not been hit by a truck, um, and also assuming that they have not uh, traveled recently to China, um, then you can pretty much say that this is the flu without any testing needed at all. Yeah. Um, however, when you're sort of on the tails of the season. Um, when the season's just ramping up or just closing out and the incidence of influ- actual influenza is a little bit less in the community, that's when you really kind of get the best test characteristics for it. Um, and when influenza is not common at all, then you're just far more likely to have a false positive than a true positive. So, um, But uh, yeah, oh, excellent. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the discussion. All right. And next up, we're going to talk about a, a new kid on the block in terms of influenza treatment potentially. And this is uh, Biloxivir uh, for Uncomplicated Influenza in Adults and Adolescents. It was published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, actually in 2018. Um, but uh, you may have seen some advertisements crawl across on your social media feed and that sort of thing now. So um, as part of our journal club, we took a, took a discussion about it. So uh, joined here by Dr. Jensen, who's going to give us a little bit of a rundown. Uh, my name is Nick Jensen. I'm one of the third-year residents here at UC. Um, so the article we're talking about is uh, Biloxivir Marboxyl for Uncomplicated Influenza in Adults and Adolescents. It was in uh, New England Journal of Medicine from September of 2018. And it goes through some of the results from the Phase 2 and Phase 3 uh, trials. Um, kind of go through it briefly. Uh, the introduction talks about why this is uh, an important topic specifically mentioning that uh, there are resistance patterns to uh, the existing antivirals that we have 
Um, drugs like amantadine are much less effective than they were when they came out, and even Tamiflu has uh, some resistance patterns that have developed. Um, and some patients may have uh, a theoretical benefit to uh, starting antiviral therapy, particularly patients who have uh, chronic comorbidities. Um, the kind of background about the drug, some mouse models demonstrated that it had uh, results or resulted in reduced mortality and pulmonary viral loads in mice. So perhaps it has a similar effect in humans. This paper doesn't go into the phase one trial that simply demonstrated safety in humans at up to 80 milligrams. Uh, going through the methods for the phase two trial, it was a double blind placebo controlled uh, dose ranging trial performed in Japan. Uh, there were four different arms. So flu is at 10 milligrams versus 20 milligrams versus 40 milligrams versus placebo. And it was in the 2015 to 2016 flu season, looking at uh, adults from 20 to 64 years of age. The phase three trial uh, was also a double-blind placebo-controlled and also Tamiflu-controlled trial that was uh, performed in both Japan and the United States. Uh, it was done in the 2016 and 2017 flu seasons. Um, and targeted a population from 12 to 64 years of age. Um, the patients who were 20 to 64 were Zofluza, uh, were in the Zofluza, Tamiflu, and placebo arms, while the pediatric patients from 12 to 19 were just in the Zofluza versus placebo arms. Inclusion criteria, you'd have an axillary temperature greater than 38 Celsius, as well as one respiratory symptom that's been going on for less than 48 hours. No patients who had symptoms for over 48 hours were included. For the phase two trial, you needed to have a positive flu sample. Uh, but for the phase three trial, they included patients that were uh, both flu positive and flu negative, although the flu negative patients weren't included in the primary outcome. Notably, patients who had underlying comorbidities, pregnant women, patients less than 40 kilos, and patients who required hospitalization were excluded from the phase two and phase three trials, uh, which is important to keep in mind. Um, for monitoring the patients, uh, they had uh, patients complete uh, questionnaires about uh, specifically seven influenza symptoms to day 14. They checked their temperature to day 14. They asked about their overall health status on a 10-point scale till day 14 and they obtained uh, nasopharyngeal swabs up to up till day nine for evaluation of viral load and uh, susceptibility to Zofluza. For outcomes, the primary endpoint for both the phase two and phase three trials was uh, the time to alleviation of symptoms, and they defined that as the time until all seven of the symptoms uh, were absent or mild for at least 21 and a half hours. Some secondary outcomes that they looked at were time to resolution of fever, return to a patient's usual health, any complications that led to antibiotic use, as well as some virologic parameters, specifically how long they were able to detect the duration, sorry, how long they were able to detect the virus, and the frequency of uh, some amino acid changes that are associated with resistance of Tamif, or sorry, resistance of influenza to Zofluza. Some general statistics that I won't get into too much. Uh, they calculated that they needed about 1,500 patients for 90% power to detect a 28-hour difference in time to alleviation of symptoms, and they used a generalized Wilcoxon test um, for their uh, primary endpoint. 
for the phase two results, uh, they had uh, about 400 patients who were enrolled. And uh, most notably, the patients in the Zafluza arms of all doses had a lower median time to alleviation of symptoms compared to the placebo group. Zofluza patients had about a 50-hour time to alleviation of symptoms, while the placebo arm had about a 78-hour time until alleviation of symptoms. There were also greater reductions in viral titers in all of the Zofluza uh, arms. Uh, but notably, 2.2% of patients who were given Zofluza were found to have those amino acid substitutions that... Uh, are associated with a tenfold reduction in susceptibility to Zofluza. The side effect profile of Zofluza was uh, essentially no different than the side effect profile of placebo, suggesting that it's pretty well tolerated. Moving on to the phase three trial, there was uh, in the Zofluza arm a lower median time to alleviation of symptoms compared to placebo, again about 54 hours compared to 80 hours but there was no change in uh, time to alleviation of symptoms between Zofluza and Tamiflu. So from a symptom standpoint, Zofluza appears to be uh, essentially the same as Tamiflu. Um, that change compared to placebo was uh, accurate or was the same for both pediatrics and adult patients. Uh, similar to Tamiflu, they've noted that there was a greater difference in time to alleviation of symptoms if Zofluza was started earlier. So patients who started within 24 hours of symptom onset had a greater benefit than those who started within 48 hours, but over 24 hours. The time to resolution of fever was slightly shorter with Zofluza compared to Tamiflu, and it did Zofluza did result in more rapid declines in viral load than Tamiflu and placebo. My take of this is that Zofluza appears to be perhaps a more effective antiviral therapy, but that doesn't seem to su- seem to be associated with a significant symptomatic difference between Zofluza and Tamiflu. Most notably, though, 9.7% of the patients who were treated with Zofluza had those same amino acid substitutions that were associated with uh, reduced susceptibility to Zofluza, and the patients who had those substitutions had Uh, prolonged infectious shedding duration, as well as time to alleviation of symptoms. So about 10% of patients had uh, mutations consistent with resistance, and those patients had a longer period of symptoms, and they were contagious for a longer period of time. Um, That was only in this phase three trial, so I'm not sure what that would look like in the general population. Um, Some of the limitations of the study, uh, a lot of the patients that I care most about who gets treated for uh, influenza weren't included. Patients with comorbidities, patients with severe disease. um, These patients will be addressed in a subsequent trial that I believe is ongoing, uh, which will be helpful to look at. These studies were, uh, I believe, funded by the drug company that develops Zofluza as well, so there is some bias to consider. That's excellent. So what was, uh, you know, we're recording this now a little bit after the uh, actual day of the journal club. Was there anything else that was brought out in the, in the, in the discussions, the conversations that were had at journal club in terms of um, the, the study, the results of the study? So uh, the, the fact that Zofusa appears to have reduction viral loads that's uh, better than Tamiflu and placebo kind of raises the question of, if we don't start Zofluza necessarily for uh, symptomatic control or symptomatic benefit over Tamiflu, would that perhaps uh, result in decreased shedding of the virus to uh, neighbors in close proximity to the patient? So 
perhaps Sufusa may be better at uh, controlling a community outbreak of influenza than Tamiflu. Um, but I still remain somewhat concerned that 10% of patients seem to develop resistance that is associated with prolonged symptoms and prolonged period of uh, contagiousness. And finally, we're going to move on to, again, what I described earlier as sort of a, what I have always found as an interesting uh, finding in the literature, and that is uh, incidence of cardiac events that's related to influenza-like illnesses and influenza infection. Um, uh, Dr. Glamour, I, I think you were going to lead the discussion on this one. Sure, sure. So I'm Mike Glamour. I'm uh, one of the third-year residents uh, here at the University of Cincinnati Department of Emergency Medicine. Um, I was really um, interested in this paper. Um, I, there's a personal connection as well. So even before I went to medical school, um, about 12 years ago, my dad had a pretty bad heart attack. Um, he's doing great. He runs about seven miles a day. He's much more fit than I am at this point. Um, but interestingly, um, his cardiologist, um, who was excellent, um, told him that other than you know, kind of the normal things that we think about um, to reduce your cardiac risk, so eating well, um, keeping your weight down, exercising, and things like that. Um, he told him that the number one thing that he can do um, to not die uh, from something stupid was to get his um, flu shot every year. And this was about 12 years ago, so well before um, um, this paper was published um, that we're going to talk about today. It's a New England Journal article uh, that comes from Canada. Uh, from the province of Ontario, um, and what these folks did was um, they looked at um, hospitalizations for myocardial infarction. Um, so they don't go into whether um, this was intervened or not, or whether this was a, a type 2 um, and STEMI, um, but they identified 364 myocardial infarctions that happened within um, within one year before and one year after a positive um, test for influenza. And um, this was a self-controlled um, cohort study. Um, so they identified the, um, the risk interval, which was um, seven days after the molecular test for influenza. And their control was uh, 52 weeks before and 51 weeks after um, that risk interval. And they compared the incidence of myocardial infarction uh, within a week of uh, molecular diagnosis um, as controlled by um, uh, their one-year interval. And they, what they found was <clears throat> pretty remarkable. Um, they found 20 admissions per week um, during the one-week interval um, and about 3.3 admissions per week during the control interval. So the incidence ratio um, for myocardial infarction uh, was uh, 6.05 uh, with a 95% uh, confidence interval of 3.86 to 9.5. Um, and <clears throat> they actually went and looked at the Different kinds, different kinds of influenza that was diagnosed, um, and they found that actually, um, interestingly, for this year in particular, when 
I would say in my clinical practice, I've diagnosed about three quarters influenza B and one quarter influenza A. Um, they found that for influenza B, the incidence ratio was uh, approximately 10 uh, with a confidence interval of uh, 4.3 to 23.3. For influenza A, the incidence ratio was about 5.2 with a confidence interval of um, 3 to 9. For respiratory syncytial virus, um, the incidence ratio was about 3.5. Um, and for all other um, respiratory syndromes, um, the incidence was about 2.8. I don't think this is necessarily a, a brand new finding. I think that um, it has been a known fact in the cardiology literature that um, it is very likely that um, respiratory illness, and in particular um, influenza, can trigger myocardial infarctions. Um, I think that this is a, a particularly well-designed study. It's a it's a self-controlled study um, that um, really really demonstrates um, very well um, the correlation between influenza and, and myocardial infarctions. Um, how does this affect my practice? Um, I think that I have known this on a personal level um, since before I went to medical school. Uh, having said that, when I see a patient in the emergency department who um, has cardiac risk factors uh, and who has influenza, it doesn't necessarily come to the top of my of my um, thought process um, that this is a patient who is at a at an increased risk for myocardial infarction, um, just given the fact that they have influenza and that they have these risk factors. So I think that definitely thinking about um, the connection between influenza and myocardial infarction um, is something that will affect how I treat patients. Yeah, I think that for for me, like having, uh, you know, come across this literature uh, a, you know, a couple of years ago, I think when, uh, when the pandemic flu was around or even a little bit before then, um, I thought, I, I you know I don't I don't know that that's it's obviously most of the literature that's out there for sort of treatment of influenza doesn't show any decreased risk of hospital admission or anything else like that so it's it's not like uh, extra treatment uh, in these groups outside of the groups that you would already be considering uh, treatment for based on the CDC guidelines um, would be necessarily indicated but I, what I, I think that this has impacted is uh, sort of my my discharge instructions for the patients just sort of those patients with a number of cardiovascular risk factors I uh, uh, add in, uh, apart from just the usual care of what you need to do to help take care of yourself when you uh, are, are infected with influenza or have an influenza-like illness, um, uh, but also to, to pay attention to uh, particularly you know, significant shortness of breath with exertion, diaphoresis, chest pain, chest discomfort, and those sort of cardiovascular ACS-type symptoms uh, so that they uh, can be uh, propped for kind of coming uh, to the emergency department for, uh, for evaluation should, uh, should those symptoms unfortunately arise. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, definitely something that I, uh, I have been thinking about is uh, making sure that these patients with um, cardiac risk factors do get their flu shot every year. And that's, uh, I feel like, something that, that we can actually uh, make a difference in um, as emergency providers. Um, one paper that I 
came across in terms of treatment um, in reading about this um, was a very interesting paper um, uh, that's about 10 years old at this point. It comes from the Veterans uh, Administration System in, um, in the United States. Um, and this paper looked at um, about 37,000 um, patients who were prescribed Tamiflu. Um, and it compared patients who filled their prescriptions versus did not fill their prescriptions, and it looked at their um, risk of cardiovascular events um, as well as stroke. Um, and it found that um, of the uh, Tamiflu-treated patients, about 8.5% um, had a negative event, and of the untreated patients, 21% uh, um, had a negative event um, in terms of their um, cardiovascular um, and uh, stroke risk. Um, it's an interesting paper. I don't know that it immediately affects um, how I would treat um, these patients, uh, but it's definitely something to think about and something to include in your uh, discussion uh, with your patient um, in terms of uh, risks and benefits of Tamiflu. It's definitely something to think about. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, joining me for this discussion, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again in the future. Take care.